Father, thank you for this amazing, wonderful lady who loves you with all her heart and has the depth of faith and love and experience. And Lord, that's what we pray comes out this morning. That relationship with you. The, the, the wisdom that she's gained by sitting and listening to you and working with you and laughing with you and crying with you and all those things, Father, that make up Jill and make up her heart and her relationship with you. I pray, Father, that you would give her a real gift of communication this morning to release that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Go for it. Thank you. Okay, so this week, as been said, we're looking at Philippians chapter 1 and under the heading Confidence in God. Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you because we had that last week very, very powerfully. And hopefully some of you have been reading it this week anyway. So I'm just going to pick out some of the verses that, that meant a lot to me and, and uh, helped us, helps us to understand the subject. So the first verse I'm going to read out is from verse 4. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So we can see that from the beginning of his letter that Paul holds the Philippian Christians with great affection and, and appreciation really because they have stood with him in the faith. But then right from the start, he makes it very clear that actually it's not because of anything special about them or anything that they've done in, in the past, but his confidence is in God working through them. Now that might seem like a little bit of a put you down in many ways, but actually I think it's promise. And to us what that means is the promise that actually we don't need to fear the future because it's not all about our ability or how big our faith is that matters. It's our confidence in God, and he is the one who is capable of fulfilling in us all the things that we need to do as we face the future. So actually, it takes away a lot of that worry. So putting our confidence in somebody else is a little bit different from being self-confident, building up our confidence. So before we go on any further... I just want to explore what that actually means. What does it mean to put your confidence in somebody else? So the first place I looked at was good old Google. And these are some of the words that I found in Google, which I thought were actually very helpful. So what does it mean to put your confidence in somebody? First of all, it means you trust them implicitly. It means you can put your faith in them because you know how they have the capability to do whatever it is they set out to do. You can rely on them. You can depend on them. You know you will, they will never let you down. And this is not just some vague hope that perhaps they'll be okay. It's a certainty. And it's, it's an assurance. You know that they will deliver on the things that they have promised to deliver. So that's what it means to put your confidence in somebody. And I just wanted to give you a little bit of an illustration of this, so please humour me on this one, because this is something that happened to me last Sunday, so I'm eager to share it. Um, just to explain, I have a couple of very good friends called Heather and Derek, 
who I've known since our college days. So that was many, many years ago. Oh, at least 10 years, maybe, (laughs) plus a bit. Um, And Heather and I actually shared a a flat together for a couple of years, so we were very, very close. And we've kept up that friendship over all the years, even though nowadays we probably only see each other once a year. And uh, she has her husband called Derek, who is also at college with us. And after college, Derek became a teacher for a few years, and then a vicar, and then a producer for the BBC. And in his spare time, he flies small aeroplanes. Now, last Sunday, they were due to come and visit us. This was our annual visit. And one of the reasons he was coming this way was because... They were coming this way was because uh, Derek has a plane up at um, Booker Airfield that he's allowed to fly. So the plan was for him to come and fly this aeroplane and then come on to us afterwards. But I arrived here at the meeting last Sunday morning and I had a phone call. And it was Heather and she said, we've got a spare seat on the plane. Would you like to join us? So, of course, I said yes. And this was us. That's the plane. We flew in. That's Derek there. Um, And actually, it was a great experience. But obviously, even though I'm not a nervous flyer, this was a new experience for me. I've never been on a plane this small before. And so I was a tad nervous before I went up. And before we went up, Derek was explaining stuff to me, and he was saying... Of course, this might happen, and that might happen. And don't worry if this happens, because then I'll do this, this, and this, and it'll be all right. And I was looking at him with, an, I was looking at him with a, a bemused expression on my face, and he said, I hope I'm not scaring you. And I said straight away, I said, no, no, it's fine. I have complete confidence in you. And it was true. I did. I did have confidence in him, because I knew him. I trusted him. And what's more, I knew he had plenty of flying experience. This wasn't his first flight. So I knew I had to be safe with him. I was quite happy to literally put my life in his hands because I was confident that I would be fine with him, I would be safe with him. (laughs) And, And so because of that, I thoroughly enjoyed the whole experience. I wasn't sitting there the whole time thinking, well, I hope I'm going to come out of this alive, but I'm not sure. No, I knew I would be safe because I trusted the pilot and I trusted his ability to fly. It was nothing to do with me or anything I had to do. My trust was in him. And I'm here to tell the tale, so it was obviously okay. So let's move on now to actually see what are the different ways in which we put our confidence in God, looking at the, at the, the, the um, at Philippians. So this is the verse that Anthea read earlier in a different version. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So the first thing we can be confident about is God's love and the power of God's love. That's a good place to start, isn't it? In fact, it's the only place to start, really, isn't it? That's where our faith begins, with God's love for us. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. We know that he loves us. We can be 100% certain that he loves us unconditionally and absolutely. And there is no doubt about that. And that applies to every single person. There is no exception to the rule. And so we can be confident that the more we allow God's love 
to, to dwell in us, that we will become more like him. So it's interesting, isn't it? If we want to become pure and blameless to the day of Christ, what do we have to do? Do we have to read the Ten Commandments three times a day? I don't think so. I don't think we even need to read the Bible every time, every day, even though that's really important to do. But that's not what it is that makes us pure and blameless in the sight of Christ. It is allowing his love and the power of his love to work through us. That's the thing that will change us. And so we can have confidence in that. Then the next thing we can have confidence is in in God over circumstances. Now we know that Paul wrote this letter from a Roman prison. He was in jail at the time. He says it in the book. And the conditions in Roman prisons, Roman jails, were not good, as you can imagine. And prisoners were held there not as a, a final punishment, but they were held there as they were awaiting trial or awaiting execution. So they still could have been there a long time. And they were not nice places to be. They were generally underground, no ventilation, filthy, low, overcrowded, prisoners chained together. And so they were pretty horrible places to be. Now, we do know that Paul was a Roman citizen, so maybe for him, conditions weren't quite so bad as they were for other people. But it's still not what he would have chosen for himself. And as I read these verses about him being in prison, what comes over to me most of all is his sense of frustration that he's stuck in there in prison so he can't go out sharing the gospel. And you can just imagine him, can't you, talking to God about it and saying, God, you know, why have you allowed me to be stuck in here when I could be out doing your work for you? And maybe God's teaching him a little bit of humility here that perhaps he's not indispensable because he realizes then that because he's in prison, other people have taken on the mantle and have gone out sharing the good news with people. And even then, Paul's a little bit iffy about it. He says, mm, I'm not quite sure about the motives of some of these people. But what I do know is that God has brought good out of this situation that I'm in. And that we've put up my, if I put my confidence in him, then it will turn out for good. It will turn out for my deliverance. And that's what I need to do. And then he goes on to say this. Because of this... I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that in no way I will be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Well, I don't know about you, but I find these verses very, very challenging from start to finish. First of all, he starts by saying, I rejoice and I continue to rejoice. And I'm struck by how often Paul says in his letters how we must rejoice in our suffering, rejoice when times are tough. And I have to say, I question that. Is that possible? How many people do you know go around with a big smile on their face saying, I'm so happy because I'm going through tough times at the moment. That's just what I wanted. It doesn't quite compute, does it? 
So what does he mean by this? How can we rejoice when we're going through tough times? And I'm very aware that as I stand up and say this in front of you, that so many of my good friends, both here in this room and elsewhere, are going through some really, really tough times at the moment. And I'll be honest with you, I hate it. It just makes me so sad. I, I want to get that magic wand and wave it around and make everything all right. And we can't do that, can't, can we? And we know that God doesn't do that either. We know that God doesn't cause the bad things to happen, but he does allow us to go through these tough times. Why is that? Maybe we'll never, ever fully understand it. But what we do know is that when we go through these tougher times, we do come out the other end stronger and better. And what we know even more than that is that God can bring good out of a bad situation. And so the only reason we can rejoice is the knowledge that our confidence is in God and not in the things that are going on around us. It doesn't mean we have to go around with a smile on our face saying, I'm so happy. But deep down here, deep down here is that knowledge, that knowledge that God is on our side, that God is with us, that God is going through it with us and he will bring good out of a good situation And that's the only thing that can enable us to rejoice when circumstances are bad. So we need to have that confidence in God in order to see us through these tough times. And then that's just the start. So then he goes on to say, I eagerly expect and hope that I will no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And in the, the uh, version that was read out last week, which I like it says, for to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Can I stand up in front of you and say that? I'm not sure. Could you stand up in front of everyone and say that? Maybe it's something we aspire to, that maybe we're not quite there yet. It's a real, real challenge, isn't it? And one thing I did think of, though, when I read this verse, is I could think of a modern-day example of someone, actually, who has fulfilled that, those verses at the end there. Somebody whose life and death we've all been focusing on these last couple of weeks. And, of course, that's the Queen, isn't it? She could, she could, I think, say that. And I think what's encouraged me when I've listened to many of the commentators about over the funeral time is so many of them have said, what was the thing that kept her going those 70 years of service? It was her faith. And they all recognised that, which I think is just amazing. And if they had any Christian um, guests on the show, the Christians would clarify that and say, yes, it was her faith in God. It was her faith in Jesus that kept her going. But whether people were Christians or not, millions and millions and billions of them were able to look at her and see that actually it was her faith that kept her going through those 70 years of a life of service for us. So she was such an example of that, wasn't she? And all of us, we may not have millions of people looking at us, but perhaps we can aspire to hope that that people will look at us and say, yes, actually... It was her faith, it was his faith that kept him going. It was his faith that enabled him to live the life that he lived. And that's what we would want to be like too, don't we? 
So, thirdly, confidence in our identity in Christ. And I'm going to read verse 27 here. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit, one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Now, in order to understand the significance of this verse, we need to understand the original Greek. So, I've been practicing this word, polichuomai. It's a Greek verb to do with citizenship. It's to do with about behavior, behaving as as a good citizen. And... Apparently, this is the only time that Paul ever uses this word in his letters. Later on in Philippi, he uses the noun that's associated with this word as well. But he only uses it when he's writing to the Philippians. And the reason being is this. Philippi was a Roman uh, outpost in Macedonia. And the people of Philippi were given the great honor of being allowed to become Roman citizens. And they were very, very proud of this. This was their identity. We are Roman citizens, and it gave them certain privileges and rights and so on. So, and because of this, they were, they were very loyal to the Roman emperor as well, which actually caused some, often a little bit of um, trouble for the Christians because it, it just made things awkward for them. So... Paul asks, okay, Paul is deliberately using this word because he knew this. He was deliberately using it because he knew that in Philippi people were proud of their Roman citizenship. And his question to the Christians in Philippi is actually, where does your identity lie? Does it align with your rights and privileges as being a Roman citizen Or is your identity in God? What is it that's important to you? And this is the thing that he said. We are citizens of heaven. Your identity is not in being a Roman citizen, but being a citizen of heaven. That God, we are part of God's kingdom and belong to him. And that should be the overriding thing that governs our behavior. So let's just go back to the verse again. If we live as citizens of heaven, it means we need to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the good news of Christ. So we know that our identity is in God, in heaven. But what that means for us is we need to live that out here on earth. How do we do that? We do it both as individuals, but also part of the community. We together are a community of citizens of heaven. And so together... We can stand in one spirit and in one purpose. And that's what's so important, isn't it? That we as a community work together to bring God's kingdom here on earth. And that's why I think it's so important for us to meet together. I've been a bit sad that recently there's been a little bit of a trend for some people to say, well, actually, I don't need to be part of church on a Sunday. That's not important. Well, I know it's not the be-all and end-all and everything, but I think it is so important that we physically meet together so that we can encourage each other 
support each other, so that we can worship together, so that we can take communion together as we're doing now. And I think that's such an important part of our Christian faith here on earth. So let us, as a church, be a community of citizens of heaven. Let's support each other. Let's be, be of one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the good news. And let's put our confidence in God as we go forward and know that he is going to enable us to do that. Thank you.